DiscerningHearts.com in cooperation with the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Albert the Great, presents St. Catherine of Siena, Her Life and Teachings with Father Thomas McDermott. Father McDermott is a Dominican priest and region of studies of the province of St. Albert the Great. He's the author of Filled with All the Fullness of God, An Introduction to Catholic Spirituality, and Catherine of Siena, Spiritual Development in Her Life and Teaching. Proclaimed a Doctor of the Church in 1970, St. Catherine of Siena is considered one of the great mystical doctors of the Church. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI has said that she still speaks to us today and impels us to walk courageously toward holiness to be ever more fully disciples of the Lord. St. Catherine of Siena, Her Life and Teachings, with Father Thomas McDermott. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Thank you for joining me again, Father McDermott. Thank you, Chris. We're at the point in St. Catherine of Siena's life where she experienced what has been termed as the mystical espousals. Can you talk to us about that? Yes. Um, Catherine had many mystical experiences. In a sense, she probably had them every day, um, particularly when she received Holy Communion. She would uh, go into ecstasy and and uh, uh, be out of it, so to speak, for two to three hours, flat on the floor, impervious to pinpricks and all the rest. And when she would awaken, she would always share with others the, the fruits of her contemplation, so to speak, which is one of the mottos of the Dominican order. But she had major mystical experiences, and one of them was the mystical espousals. But I want to say that she never held this up as a goal of ordinary Christian life. I think she saw it as a grace that was given to her and not necessary for salvation, but as a kind of extra that the Lord allowed her. It was interesting to me as I studied her that all of her major mystical experiences weren't things just for her benefit, but they all had an apostolic orientation. Each of them represented a kind of deepening of her outreach to others. And so she comes to the mystical espousals. We don't really know. I haven't seen any writing on this from reliable commentators, whether it was actually a marriage that she uh, envisioned or whether it was like an engagement ceremony where only in heaven would it be consummated in a mystical marriage. But she was in any case betrothed to the Lord Jesus in this uh, mystical experience that she had. Many other saints had the same experience. For a lot of modern people today, I think it's it's a turnoff. You know, they're not impressed with it. But our own father, Ashley, fellow Dominican, who died a few months ago at a ripe old age, in one of his books, he says that the symbolism of the spiritual union of the human person with God as a marriage is perfectly biblical. The prophets portray the covenant between Yahweh and Israel as a marriage in which there is fidelity or infidelity on the part of Israel, but not on the part of Yahweh, who is always faithful. And then he comments on the biblical book, The Song of Songs, which traditionally, even among the rabbis, was read as an allegory of this mutual love of God in Israel, or perhaps the mutual love of the Messiah in Israel. And then when we come to the New Testament, the, the, marital, the marital theme is even more pronounced. In the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom, the kingdom of heaven as a wedding banquet. St. Paul in Second Corinthians and Ephesians speaks of Christ as the bride of his church. And then the same metaphor is used in the book of Revelation. 
And so we really shouldn't be surprised that Christian mystics have adopted this same marital symbolism, and that Catherine and many other saints too envisioned that, that they had been betrothed by the Lord. All of us have been betrothed by the Lord because of the virtue of our baptism. We're united with him. It's just one way of looking at it, but it's a way that's uh, profoundly biblical. I really appreciate how you've described it as a uh, preparation for a greater service to God and to neighbor, that it, it's uh, in union with the work of raising up the neighbor. And a marriage, the fruits of it, the ideal is the raising up of the children. Mm-hmm. And in Catherine's case, you know, going back to this theme of spiritual maternity, the Lord expected her to bring to birth many souls, you know, that she would bring many people to Christ and that they would be reborn in a sense through their vital contact with him, with Catherine as a mediator. She would go on later in her teachings talking about essentially the fruits of that relationship as conceiving or bearing the virtues, giving mm-hmm. birth to those. That's a, that is a very maternal image, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, um, you know, she was following a certain tradition there of emphasizing the virtues instead of the commandments. And that was pretty universal in the church in her day. Yeah, you have the commandments. The commandments are absolutely essential. They they make it possible. They like clear away the ground so that God can build an edifice in our souls, so to speak. But they are negative things. They clear a space in our souls so that God can begin work. And he helps us in the process of that clearing away. But the virtues are things that we aspire to. We acquire some of them through practice. Those are the moral virtues. And then some of them are given to us by God as as pure gifts. Those are the infused virtues, and the principal ones are faith, hope, and charity. And Catherine talks a lot about the virtues and how we should strip ourselves as if we're taking off clothing, strip ourselves of vice and put on virtue, clothe ourselves in, in virtue. She wasn't alone in that or exceptional in putting her emphasis on the virtues, which are something positive, something we can aspire to. And I think that in uh, moral theology, you know, there's been a return to education on the virtues. I think, you know, in talking, if I were a father and biological father in a family, I think I'd have much more success in giving my children something to aspire to than merely telling them what to avoid. You know, thou shalt not commit adultery or steal or covet or things like that, but give them something positive to aspire to. I think that's a better pedagogy. And I think it really helps us to be able to operate and grow within a, in a community. I mean, living out the virtues because virtues in and of themselves, if it was just us all alone, wouldn't have the same kind of effect. I mean, a virtue really is something that you see it in the interaction with others, don't you? Exactly. And Catherine said that the claim that you have certain virtues like humility and love, but you never enact them in your relationship with others is like a pregnant woman who never brings to light a child. She's just pregnant for years so that you really don't know whether or not you possess the virtues until they're found in your relationship with others. Otherwise, they're just theoretical. 
I wonder if this present age really has an appreciation of the virtues. I, I know you've just said that it's the thought of bringing that back into moral theology that they're to be, understand it because it seems as though we're, it's been flipped on its head in our culture today, mm-hmm. at least in, at least in North America. Yes. Well, remember a few years ago, we had a secretary of education in the United States who came out with a book of virtues because he thought that whole chapter in the history of educating children had been lost and that fairy tales and fables and other stories had as one of their fundamental purposes the the passing on of virtue education for children. And I, I think we have lost that sense. And I always try to remind myself and others that the virtues really are the characteristics of Jesus Christ. There are hundreds of them. It's one thing to say to someone, uh, what would Jesus do or be more Christ-like? But an examination of the virtues really helps us to see what it means to be Christ-like. So I, I think it's, um, it's something that's really urgent that we need to return to education and the virtues. And the, there's an old Latin expression that if you don't know of something you won't aspire to it. There are higher forms of love. Well, we, we may not aspire to it if we don't know that such exists or that such is possible. And the virtues make us aware of how high, in a sense, we can fly with God's help. Mm. Another thing that I think that really aided her as she got outside the cell, she was beginning to it really respond to those works of mercy towards her neighbor was that vision of the soul's beauty. It was the only time that Catherine ever asked for a particular extraordinary gift from the Lord. And she wanted to know what the state of someone's soul would be. I think Padre Pio had this gift too. So if someone approached her, uh, she could see whether the soul was in a state of sin or a state of grace and, you know, general state of the soul. The Lord granted her that gift and then she used it, you know, in her ministry of uh, the salvation of souls. Uh, she could see whether someone's soul was corrupted by sin or whether grace, which in the Catholic tradition, grace isn't just merely forgiveness, but it's a participation in the divine life of God, whether or not God really lives in us, whether, great, whether Jesus lives in us. That's what it means to be in a state of grace. She could, she could discern that as a result of a special gift from God. Having all those and others, I'm sure as well, can we say tools in her toolbox in her, in her state, she ventures out and even in helping to minister to those around her. She didn't necessarily go to foreign lands, but it was enough that she would help the neighbor across the street or the person within the context of her community. Some of the stories that are told of those interactions are in many cases, virtually heroic. Yes, they are. And, uh, you know, she was a great lover of solitude. After three years in the cell, she expected to be there for the rest of her life, basking in all these consolations from the Lord. She got a real jolt one day when the Lord appeared to her and said, all right, Catherine, it's time for you now to come out and share with others Mm. what it is you received. And she broke down crying. It was traumatic. She didn't want to leave him, so on and so forth. But a great moment in her life, she decided to obey, and she came out of her cell, and she returned gradually to full life in her family, and she became a kind of maid in the family house and started, you know, cleaning and cooking and all the rest for them. 
And then uh, she also mustered the courage to, because her father, father was a little bit wealthy, to bring food staples like oil and wine and wheat and things to the homes of poor people, drop them off at night. And so when they would open the door in the morning, they would see this, they wouldn't know who had left it there. And she was also a very shy person. It's interesting, though, as she matured, she was anything but shy. But she always, I think, was a lover of solitude, wanted to be alone with the Lord. But the Lord would, in a sense, throughout the rest of her life, say, all right, it's, uh, now go out and share with others the fruit of your contemplation. How much of that do you suppose, Father McDermott, is the result of that Dominican aspect of her spirituality? There is historically a difference between the Dominicans and the, and the Jesuits when it comes to our perception of holiness, although I suppose the majority of Jesuits now, that disparity of opinion wouldn't exist. But it used to be, and maybe this is a caricature of Jesuit Ignatian spirituality, that the taking off of vices and the putting on of virtues was the role of the laity. So basically it was the Ten Commandments. And that the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know, wisdom, gift of understanding, gift of knowledge, so on and so forth, that was the intended domain of consecrated people, monks and nuns and some priests. But the Dominican contribution to this whole discussion, which reached maturity at the Second Vatican Council, is that all of us are called to holiness. It's not a sacred preserve of consecrated persons, all of us. Laity and monks and nuns are called to holiness. This is the universal call to holiness. We're used to hearing it now. It's never that it was denied before in the history of the church, but it wasn't emphasized. Now it's emphasized. And that holiness is the flowering of baptismal grace. That's all it is. All of us are baptized. This is the full flowering of baptismal grace. It doesn't come as a result of taking vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. No, it's the intended growth of the virtues that we receive on the day of our baptism. That would be really exemplified, that, that growth in holiness with her interaction in particular with, with her fellow man, Talante, Andrea. Yes, you know, from dropping off food at the houses of the poor, she went a little bit further after a while, and she started taking care of the sick members of her third order group. And there was one woman in particular who had breast cancer. Her name was uh, Andrea, and she was very difficult to get along with. And in her weakened state, she was even more cantankerous. Nobody could stand to go near her because of the stench of her cancer. Catherine would minister to her and clean her up every day. And Andrea just became uh, more and more difficult and would taunt her and accuse her of having affairs with the Dominican friars, so on and so forth, and would, would, would spread, you know, these lies about her. But Catherine continued to take care of her. And I think that was kind of the flip side of the crisis that she had, the dark night of self-knowledge that she had in the cell where the Lord withdrew his consolations from her and she learned that it was important to keep on loving the Lord and walking in faith during such times. That's, not, that's when faith is really shown, not during the good times. That this was a similar experience when it came to the human realm, that it's, it's one thing to care for others, our neighbors, you know, when they 
are in good spirits and uh, congratulate us and make us feel great. It's quite another thing to keep on doing it when they become antagonistic and try to uh, harm us. But she continued. So it was, it, there were like parallel experiences that she had. This is happening during the, the summer of 1370, which so much comes out of that particular summer that is so transformative for Catherine. Yeah, she had some of her major mystical experiences that summer. She had the mystical espousals. She had the exchange of hearts. She experienced a mystical death where everybody thought she was dead and started consoling Lapa, her mother. I think all of these major events, and I'm, I'm following the lines of a great Italian Dominican commentator on St. Catherine of Siena, Father Durso, that it represented a synthesis of her th- theological thought, that she was maturing these were major mystical experiences of, her, of hers, and each one was meaningful in a different way. We'll return to St. Catherine of Siena, her life and teachings, with Father Thomas McDermott in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs. Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. A Prayer of St. Catherine of Siena My nature is fire. In your nature, eternal God, I shall come to know my nature. And what is my nature, boundless love? It is fire, because you are nothing but a fire of love. And you have given humankind a share in this nature, for by the fire of love you created us. And so, with all other people and every created thing, You made them out of love. Oh, ungrateful people, what nature has your God given you? His very own nature. Are you not ashamed to cut yourself off from such a noble thing through the guilt of deadly sin? Oh, eternal Trinity, my sweet love, you, light, give us light. You, wisdom, give us wisdom. You, supreme strength, strengthen us. Today, eternal God, let our cloud be dissipated so that we may perfectly know and follow your truth in truth with a free and simple heart. God, come to our assistance. Lord, make haste to help us. Amen.
If you have been blessed in some way by the spiritual nourishment and teachings offered freely by all those involved with Discerning Hearts programs, please consider a positive review for the various programs on the iTunes and Google Play stores. This is a great way to help the ministry and is an encouragement to others who are seeking the best in spiritual formation to find and check out the programs. Won't you please help? It's an easy way to help give back and to be a part of the mission. Thank you, and God bless from all at Discerning Hearts. We now return to St. Catherine of Siena, Her Life and Teachings, with Father Thomas McDermott. Would you say, Father, that that moment with Andrea was maybe parallel to St. Francis's moment with a leper? Yes, that's a very good comparison. Uh, the story goes that St. Francis always had a, an aversion to lepers and to their sores. One day when he, he saw a leper, he did the unthinkable. You know, he went up and kissed his sores. That kind of reflected, you know, I, I'd say his self-conquest with the help of God's grace. Well, the same thing happened with St. Catherine of Siena. One day she was uh, washing Andrea. She had cancerous wounds and foul matter. She felt within herself a human revulsion to what she was seeing and smelling. And in order to overcome that, uh, she did the unthinkable, like St. Francis of Assisi did. She drank the water, the wastewater with the foul matter in it. And, uh, and after that, the Lord congratulated her for rising above human nature, her human revulsion, and, um, and, and showing that she continued to love someone despite the fact that it wasn't, there wasn't anything in it whatsoever for herself. Uh, just as she had done in the cell when she continued to uh, be faithful to the Lord, even though he had withdrawn all consolations from her. This incident with Andrea that I just mentioned is famous, and it's caused a lot of people, even my fellow Dominican friars over the centuries, to throw down the book, whether it's, uh, well, it's only recorded in Raymond's biography of her, and not go any further. But in my book on St. Catherine of Siena, I quote an article that was written by a scholar at a secular university in Ohio, where she shows how other medieval saints went much, much further than St. Catherine of Siena did, that St. Catherine's forcing herself to, to do what she did was rather mild by comparison to the other feats of human conquest that uh, the saints performed. So anyway, that's why I think it's best if someone wants to study St. Catherine of Siena not to begin with Raymond of Kappa's biography, but begin with a contemporary biography based on the primary sources. All of them will discuss this incident in her relationship with Andrea, but I usually it's put into a context that won't cause you to throw the book on the ground and uh, give up on St. Catherine. It's all about context, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Because when you think about the actual encounter, we look at what St. Francis did, and somehow that's okay and and wonder and, and it is it's inspiring it's challenging and yet what Catherine did is a challenge to us in that are we willing to do the unthinkable mm-hmm. not, not unlike Maximilian Colby stepping up exactly and, exactly <laughs> well you put it very well that's a very good point I remember reading once uh, a life of St. Maximilian Colby where they said that, you know, the moment when, in which he offered his life as a substitute to the family man, 
that this was not one-off with him. This was not exceptional, that his whole life he had been taking second place to other people and that this was just, in a sense, the logical next step for him to do this. Now, if all St. Catherine of Siena had ever done was drink the foul matter, foul matter when she was nursing Andrea, you know, so what? But when you read her letters and the biographies about her, you see that this really was reflective of, of what she'd in fact do, which was go to extreme lengths to help other people and to save their souls. And when you read the biography and the letters of St. Catherine of Siena, you'll see that uh, in the dialogue too, you'll see that um, she has a lot of practical wisdom about how to live around other people. And and she says, you know, many times not to tell people the truth is cruel. We're not loving them. We're fooling ourselves if we think we're loving them. We're just loving ourselves. You know, we don't want to be bothered. We don't want to be harassed. And of course, I think she's right. Many times we do that. Of course, we have to take great care in the way in which we tell other people the truth and also be open to hearing the truth about ourselves, too. Don't you think that the great mystics are some of the most practical people that have ever lived? (laughs) Maybe it's because they've been so close to what true reality is that when they interact with us, they're just, they're very practical. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's certainly the case of St. Catherine of Siena. Sometimes it's said that the the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that people who are advanced spiritually and or who are very holy, do things that appear to the rest of us as absurd, but they're walking to the beat of a different drummer. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, when our lives are activated by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we do things that appear not to be reasonable at times. And I'm thinking of all the the foundresses of religious congregations who announced, you know, that they were putting up uh, enormous mother houses when they didn't have a dime in the bank. Mm-hmm. And yet they did it, you know, or St. Dominic, when he sent something like six of his 13 followers right from the beginning to Paris to study, you know, it seems suicidal for the group, but he said hoarded rain, hoarded grain rots, you know? Mm-hmm. So many times they do things, the saints that just appear impractical to the rest of us. Some of the best theology books are the lives of the saints. Mm -hmm. That they teach us something so much more. And And I think even in that action by Catherine of Siena and drinking that, that it, it almost was a statement that it just doesn't matter that there Mm -hmm. is nothing, even my own health, even the things that are for you, Lord, there is nothing that is standing in the way between my response to what you are asking me to do. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, she was looking at Andrea and her conscience reproached her and said, you know, here is somebody that the Lord died for. I'm revolted. How can this be? And so to conquer that revulsion in her, she does the unthinkable. So, And then she would have that experience of the uh, exchange of hearts that's written, written about it. I find that really compelling, Father McDermott, in the fact that our Lord would appear to a a number of uh, mystics, essentially, in the communication of the reality of that, of the the essence of the heart. Not so Mm -hmm. much the physical heart, but that just the the heart of the person, whether it be Margaret Mary Alcott or or Gertrude the Great or a number of others, uh, and not just Catherine of Siena. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, the incident was the Lord appeared to her and removed her heart 
and replaced it with his own. And this represented to St. Catherine a union of wills, of her will with the divine will, that from now on she wasn't doing what she wanted to do, but what the Lord asked her to do. So again, it had a, a horizontal dimension to it that would impact other people. Ultimately, this would lead to that experience of the stigmata, uh, one that is not visible, unlike the ones we've come to understand for St. Francis and then again, a contemporary experience of Padre Pio. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. still very, very real and very painful. Yes, and that was another momentous religious experience she had. Um, uh, St. Francis of Assisi had it before her, and her experience of it occurred in a chapel in Pisa. She had been asked by the people and by a group of cloistered nuns in Pisa to go there and, and speak to them because they had heard that her teaching was wonderful. And she's in the chapel one Sunday morning, red rays come from the crucifix and an imprint on her body, the, the wounds of Christ, the five wounds. And she asked the Lord not to make them visible. And so they are removed. They were said to have returned and, and become visible again when after she died. But uh, I show in my book that this represents a certain deepening of her sense of mission and that she's going to suffer now, not for the sake of suffering for no reason, but she's going to suffer now for the salvation of sinners enter into the passion of Jesus Christ so that we can all be saved. I wish we had more time in this particular segment, but in closing on this reflection on the life of St. Catherine of Siena, any final thoughts, Father McDermott? Her life was very singular. It was very unusual. And yet, I think part of her common sense and practicality is that when she writes the dialogue, this mature synthesis of her spiritual thought towards the end of her life. She hardly mentions any of these things, and she certainly doesn't present any of her own extraordinary mystical experiences as things that are um, requirements or goals or things that should even be aspired to because she said they shouldn't in the Christian life. So I think that's unusual. And, um, and the dialogue, incidentally, unlike the works of, of St. Teresa of Babila, and St. John of the Cross, who came several centuries later, uh, their work were intended for their fellow religious. But St. Catherine was writing for everybody, you know, everybody in the world, consecrated persons, ordinary people like her mother. And also, uh, she stays very close to the gospel. She doesn't uh, get all involved in uh, psychological states and things like that. She's very close to the gospel, and many of the things she says are... Um, commentaries, I would say, on sacred scripture without explicitly saying so. Hmm, Fascinating. Thank you so much, Father McDermott. You're welcome. You've been listening to St. Catherine of Siena, Her Life and Teachings with Father Thomas McDermott. To hear and or to download this recording, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Albert the Great. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation 
which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for St. Catherine of Siena, Her Life and Teachings with Father Thomas McDermott.